There had never been a formerly incarcerated person that had won a state elected office in my, in my state. And I felt like I needed to normalize it. Welcome to The Hardest Up, a podcast about second chances and redemption. My name is Chris Marte. I'm a city council member representing my community in lower Manhattan. And my name is Moya. I'm a producer on The Hardest Step. I'm usually behind the scenes, but I'm filling in for cost today. Now, Chris, today we have the pleasure of speaking to an elected official who, like yourself, is passionate about helping those in her community. She has worked on a range of issues from housing to helping guide those who have been formerly incarcerated. She is definitely passionate. Today we're sitting down with Representative Simmons, Washington State's first formerly incarcerated legislator, she is a mother, a civil rights activist, and a national leader working to fight for criminal justice reform. Tara, your tenacity and story is truly so inspiring, and we're excited to be speaking with you today. Welcome to The Hardest Step. Well, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you for being on today. And so let's, yeah. get, let's get to it. Tell us about your life story, where it all began. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and the neighborhood that you were raised in. I, you know, grew up in generational poverty and violence. My father is Latino and I grew up in Stockton, California in the in the projects um pretty much and my parents divorced when I was a year old. They both were struggling with addiction and so I really didn't have, you know, a family to kind of look after me and so I really grew up in the streets mostly. By the time I was 14, I um, had already served time in juvenile detention several times and was pregnant and homeless at 14 years old. And so, you know, when my father was a crack addict, um, you know, there was people, you know, selling crack off our front porch and I was exposed to a lot of gang violence when I was young and sexual abuse. And I think now looking back at where I sit today, Everything I'm doing today is really to fight for my younger self and to kind of, you know, try to eliminate adverse childhood experiences so people have a first chance at life. I mean, we often talk about second chances, but I, I really firmly believe and know throughout my whole being that people just don't have a first chance. So that's, that's kind of like where I grew up and my upbringing. So I had my first son, Devon, when I was 15. And uh, that was kind of a blessing in disguise, to tell you the truth, because it allowed me to get welfare and TANF. And so I was able to get my own place for the first time in my life where I had some safety. And even though it was like a cockroach infested studio apartment, at least I was safe. And so me and Devon, we've, we've kind of grown up together. And then I had uh, my second son, Dominic, you know, a few years later. So I've got these two boys and I'm, you know, trying my best to kind of provide for them. And, and one area I did excel was in school. And so when I went back to school after never having gone to high school, I did all four years in one year and I graduated at 16. And I was the first person in my whole family to ever even graduate from high school. And during that time, were you forced to go back to school? Because I know I was reading about you, your story, and Child Protective Services, they wanted to almost take your son from you. So yes. was it because of that that you decided you need to finish school? Yeah. So, you know, having Devon at such a young age, really, I just wanted to protect him. And yeah, they did. They came to my hospital bed when I had him and they made me sign a contract that if I was to drink or have people over at my 
little studio apartment or not go to school, that they would take him away from me. And so that really motivated me to do those things because, you know, loving your, your child, right. There's nothing like a mother's love for their child. And, and I would do anything to protect him. And so that, that did really help me go back to school. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a support system at that period in your life or was it just you kind of getting by? Yeah, not really, not from my family of origin, but it was funny when I went back to school, I had met this girl in my class and her mom, she went home and told her mom about me and her mom became kind of like an angel to me and would bring me food and like come help, you know, clean up my place. And, and so I did get, you know, support from like strangers that throughout my life, it's just weird that these different people would appear and support me because I didn't have that from a family of origin. I wish everybody had these kind of like community angels is what I call them now. And I I try to be that for others, you know, but yeah, I didn't have, uh, you know, traditional support. And and you eventually became a nurse, right? So you not only went back to school, but you're able to get employed. How was that, you know, after dealing with so much child traumas for you to be helping people and supporting others? Yeah. Yeah. My first career as a nurse was really my calling. It was I mean, an incredible feeling to be the first person in my family to even graduate high school, but then also go on to college. And you know what motivated me to go to college is a neighbor told me that if I went to college, I would get Pell Grants and that these Pell Grants, you could keep the money and it wouldn't affect your welfare check. And again, it was about buying my son some shoes. And I wanted my kids to always have nice shoes because I didn't want them to get picked on or bullied. I wanted them to feel good in school. That is what motivated (laughs) me to go to school. (laughs) And so I did. I was the first person, like I said, to even graduate high school, let alone college in my family. I didn't know that was even an option for me. But once I got there at 16 years old, I started college and you know, the like college advisors and teachers like started supporting me and telling me about different options and that I could transfer to a university and become a nurse. And like I said, I always excelled academically. That's one of the strengths I had that like helped me with my resilience, I think. But, you know, emotionally, I wasn't, I wasn't healed from all that trauma. And so while I would do really well with academics and maybe my professional life, I was always struggling with relationships or, um, dealing with conflict and all of these other areas. So it's been a, it's been a journey. It's been a lot of great healing work, especially the last 10 years. And it, it must have been really hard, you know, being placed in a situation uh, that you were as a nurse, right? You've seen other people deal with drug issues or, you know, violent situations. And how did that make you feel? And like, were you able to, to deal with it emotionally? Yeah. I mean, I feel like when I was at work as a nurse, I was able to kind of compartmentalize. But when I would go home, you know, that is where the challenges were because, you know, my friends and my family and my community was all people like I was the one doing the most as far as having a profession, having a house, you know, all this. So I I was surrounded by a lot of traumatized people and um, chose partners that were abusive or addicted or alcoholic or, you know, things like that, because I didn't necessarily, I guess, know my worth at that time because of all the childhood trauma. And so, but at work, I I was doing okay. I didn't start using drugs um, at work. So I, I was using drugs in my personal life. So what happened? There was an incident, correct? You know, I had always kind of like dabbled 
in drugs at mm. different times, but I had fallen down some stairs. It didn't happen at work, oh. um, but it happened at home and I had broke my tailbone. And so I started um, seeing a doctor and he was prescribing me opiates. And I just really thought because they were prescribed that I wasn't an addict like my father, my mother, or anybody else, because these were prescribed drugs. But he kept giving me more and more. And for me, it was like, as long as I'm taking them as prescribed, I'm not really addicted. Um, and so that's really where my addiction started. Um, and, and then I had another doctor that was giving me some uppers, right, to help because the opiates were making me tired. So then another doctor was giving me Adderall and Ritalin and things like that. So these prescribed drugs are definitely not a good idea <laughs> for anybody. But I really thought, well, I'm just taking them as a prescriber. I'm not taking more than what they're giving me. I'm not, you know, using illegal drugs. So I'm not an addict, but I really, I really was. And this led uh, eventually to, to, to going to prison, right? Like being addicted to Adderall, opioids. Can you tell us a little bit about from being there to getting in prison, what happened and what led to that conviction? Yeah. So eventually I just kind of stopped caring about everything and was just using more and more drugs and illegal drugs and just kind of lost myself. And so, you know, I was like stealing from stores and I was selling my prescribed drugs then to get illegal drugs. And, and that's really what I went to prison for. It was for delivery of a small amount of prescribed drugs to get illegal drugs instead uh, and then also some theft convictions. And then when they raided my place I was staying and my rental car, there was a gun in the trunk. So I got unlawful possession of a firearm. So I ended up getting five felony charges and went to prison for 30 months in 2011. I had previously served time in, in juvenile detention and in jail, but I had never been to prison until until that happened in 2011. And that must have been, I must have felt like rock bottom for you, right? Because you, you had a job, you, were, you had a home, you were raising your kid and to end up in prison must have been, you must have thought, what am I doing, right? Or did you have a turning point at that moment? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely pushes you into powerlessness, right? Like I tried for the first three weeks to try and get people to bail me out because I had already been arrested. This was the third time I'd been arrested in three months. And, you know, I was already out on bail twice. <laughs> and nobody was coming to get me this time. No friends, no family. They were like, nope, you're staying there because every time we bail you out, you're just back in the streets. And wow. so, um, you know, I finally just kind of had to surrender. And I don't um, think that that is a humane way to get people into treatment or into recovery. But for me, it definitely did force me into like looking at my part and how I got there and really looking at, you know, real deep stuff, right? Not just my part. Yeah, I was doing drugs. Yes, I need to take responsibility. Yes, I was stealing. This is all things that I don't condone and I need, but why was I doing that? Oh yeah, this childhood trauma stuff. I really mm -hmm. need to deal with it, right? And so that kind of, that with the combination of going to prison and being exposed to volunteer programs that were coming in and sharing about recovery from substance use disorder. It was like the first time I met people, you know, that also had like a lot of the shame and a lot of the childhood abuse and, and things that I was dealing with and holding in. 
and they had also used drugs and then they got into recovery and they like bought houses and rebuilt their lives and had healthy marriages and like were professionals. And so meeting those people, um, those volunteers that came into the prison helped me see other people that I didn't need to hold it inside anymore. I didn't, didn't need to carry around this like shame that didn't belong to me. And I really started my healing process in prison, although it is impossible for people to heal in prison when you're constantly being re-traumatized in these conditions. And so I want people to find that in a different, more humane way. Yeah, no, I agree. And it was it was at that moment where you had a spark of possibly getting into law, right? Can you tell us a little bit of what led you to that transition? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in prison, not only are you there on your criminal legal case, but then all the collateral consequences I was facing. For example, the state was taking action to get my against my nursing license. I was at risk of losing custody of my children. I had all of these court fines and fees and my credit was ruined because everything I had was in collections and going to bankruptcy and you know, all of this stuff, right? That happens, these collateral civil consequences. And and these uh, law students came into the prison to help women who were facing family law issues uh, around their children and keeping custody of your children. And so these law students were helping me with my child custody issues, my divorce, and they were encouraging me to go to law school because uh, I was helping the other women too. Because I had education background and, you know, a bachelor's degree, and I was always kind of resourceful and good at navigating systems for myself. And they really encouraged me to think about going to law school. And they didn't know, though, at the time, if I could actually become a lawyer with my criminal record, but they did know who to contact. And that was a professor at Seattle University School of Law. His name is Professor John Strait. And so I just wrote his name down in my journal. And a couple of years later, I, I, I reached out to him. So, And I, I want to go back a little, or even during okay. this time, you know, you mentioned that what really pushed you to, you know, get those Pell Grants and go to school is because you wanted to buy shoes for your son. Mm-hmm. During this time, you know, when you started considering law, did you where first of all where was your son and or you know who was watching him and then also was he always like in the back of your head like I got to get out for him oh yeah definitely Mm -hmm. so I have two sons now at this point and my older son Davon he turned 18 right when I went to prison and so like right before I went to prison I actually drove him to college Um, Mm -hmm. he had got a football scholarship and um, he was away at college. And then I have my other son, Dominic, who was eight years old at the time. And definitely both of my boys were, and always, and still to this day are, like my North Star and why I get up every day is to protect them and make sure that they don't go through the same things that I did and my parents did and my grandparents did. And you know, it was really hard when I was in prison because I did, I wrote them every day. I sent them cards. I tried to call as often as I could, but like phone calls were $15 for 20 minutes. I mean, it it was hard, right? To maintain that contact and to parent from prison, but I did everything I could. There was a program where you could sign up to do like parent teacher conferences. And so I did that. My eight-year-old was staying with my ex-husband and 
he would bring him to come to come see me. And then my 18-year-old, Devon, finally got a, approved. It's a lengthy process. You have to get birth certificates. But he got approved to chaperone Dominic. And so the two of them would come see me together as well. So I did get to see them. I, I stayed in contact as much as I could. And you know, and that was the best of circumstances. I was very lucky. A lot of mothers don't get that contact with their kids when they're in prison because they don't have the, the families don't have the resources or their, you know, relationships are so tarnished. And even with all of that, my sons have had to do, uh, have suffered with abandonment issues because of it. And so the impacts of the criminal injustice system are not just apparent on the people that are in prison and the conditions they're exposed to, but also the children are, you know, suffering. So I'm very fortunate. My uh, kids now are 29 and 19 and I'm fortunate they haven't been incarcerated, been to prison. They're, um, they're doing really well. So what, what type of sneakers did you get for Devon <laughs> when he was a child? Oh, he always wanted the Jordans, you know. Of course. <laughs> of course, he always wanted the Jordans. Awesome. <laughs> Still does. And they're expensive. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that, that habit hasn't, hasn't been forgotten. He can buy his own now. <laughs> I know, I know. But I still want to, you know, do it. I still want to get them for him because I of love him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you had this de determination to become a lawyer, right? And yes. so tell us about that process of, you know, taking the bar exam, studying for it, or even applying for Seattle U. How was that like? Oh, my goodness. So, you know, I had contacted the so when I got out of prison, you know, I was working at Burger King, right? Nobody would give me a job because of my criminal record. And I was, you know, Again, facing housing instability, paying off these court fines and fees. They're garnishing my Burger King paycheck to pay the court fines and fees. And again, I'm just like, how am I going to provide for my kids? And, you know, I have Dominic still at home. Davon, you know, he's just working at McDonald's, not making much. And, you know, I want to take care of my kids. So I finally reached out to Professor Strait after I was out for about a year and I told him my whole criminal record and what I've been doing. And he said, you know, I think if you continue to stay in recovery and continue to give back to your community, you'll have a chance at becoming a lawyer if you go to law school. And I said, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go to law school. It's going to give me three years of more time away from my criminal record. Um, and I need a new profession. I couldn't be a nurse anymore. I was able to keep my nursing license, but nobody would hire me with my criminal record in the nursing field. So I didn't really have a lot of options. Um, you know, Pell Grant, you can only get through your first bachelor's degree. So it was like, I have to go on to graduate school in some way. So I applied and I was very fortunate and very lucky to get accepted. I, I love my school forever because they gave me a chance. I, you know, was probably the first really out formerly incarcerated person. It didn't start like that. I wasn't really open about my past when I got there. It seemed like I definitely did not feel like I belonged there. Um, it, I, you know, came from severe poverty. I did not feel, I didn't know any lawyers in my life <laughs> and it did not feel like I really belonged there. But after a little bit of time, you know, I really had to dig deep and get support from outside the law school to kind of learn my voice and, and how to make an impact and start challenging the narrative in classrooms when we're talking about criminals. And, you know, I, I felt like I really had to do that. So, you know, I started to find my voice. And, you know, judges and prosecutors and lawmakers all started hearing about my story and asking me to speak at different conferences. 
And I just decided I'm going to use this as my platform. I'm not going to hide from it because I can't hide from it. I'm going to go try to be a corporate lawyer. They're not going to hire me. So I'm going to go into public service and I'm going to use this as my platform. And, you know, during law school, I got appointed by the governor to serve on boards and commissions. I started a nonprofit. I interned at five different legal aid organizations. I graduated magna cum laude with the Dean's Medal, the Graduating Student Award. And I go through the character and fitness hearing to become a lawyer. And they told me that I couldn't sit for the bar because of my past. After all this work I had done, I kept my nursing license even and and did random drug testing for five and a half years that I had to pay for. Um, And the only reason I did it is so I could prove that I was in recovery. And then I got hit with that denial to take the bar exam. And it was it was very devastating. Yeah, I feel like your whole life story is a is a great example of how systemic everything is right from Mm -hmm. you like where you grew up, the, the hurdles that you had in school, leaving school, you know, becoming a nurse, dealing with the environment that you lived around, and then even afterwards having to check the box, right? And people doing mm-hmm. probably criminal background checks and limiting that opportunity. But I'm, as our audience is gonna find out, you never let that stop you, right? You took this to the, the highest court, the Supreme Court yeah. and, and fought it. Can you tell us about you know that experience of defending yourself really? Yeah, so it's really funny because also one of the reasons why I applied to law school was because I had read this book called The Lawman by Sean Hopwood. And he was a person who had served 12 years in federal prison for five armed bank robberies. And from his prison cell, he got the United States Supreme Court to accept an appeal on behalf of his cellmate. And he was in law school. So he was a second year student at University of Washington, which is close to my house, when I decided I wanted to go to law school and I read his book and I went and met with him. So now fast forward, I'm he graduated two years before me. He made it through the character and fitness board here in Washington State without a problem. He became a lawyer and he had five armed bank robberies on his record. Okay. But then here I go and they say, oh, she feels entitled to this. Mm -hmm. She is too proud of her accomplishments because I had gotten this Skadden fellowship, which was, you know, a really coveted fellowship that nobody in my state had gotten ever in the history. And it's been around 30 years. It's like this huge award, right? And I was very proud of that. And I was proud that I had overcome so much to graduate as the Dean's medalist. And women should be able to be proud of themselves, damn it. Like we shouldn't, you know, especially when you overcome stuff. So anyway, the Supreme, the character and fitness people were denying me the right to take the bar exam because they, th- they didn't like my attitude, I guess. They didn't, they didn't think that I was groveling enough. So Sean Hopwood, <laughs> he was now a Georgetown law professor after he just got done clerking at the D.C. Circuit in Washington, D.C., he decided to take my case pro bono and come to Washington State where he was a licensed lawyer in Washington State. (laughs) And without saying anything, everyone knew his story. And he he argued my case in front of the Washington State Supreme Court where those justices knew him, Mm. knew that he, and we're reciting to his story throughout the briefing. It was just insane. Like, you know, and, and so he did an amazing argument 
people came from all over the country. I mean, the the room was overfilled. The media was there. And he just slayed this argument to the state Supreme Court. And, you know, we left that day. It, was, it took about seven months from the time I was denied until we got in front of the Supreme Court. And it was just a horrible time. Like most people with substance use disorder would probably relapse, you know, but thank God I had like a lot of support in my life. But it was so traumatic to go through all that to be denied at the end. So anyway, it took seven months and he came to Washington, argued. And usually after those cases, it takes about five or six months before you get an opinion from the Supreme Court. Well, those justices were so mad at the Bar (laughs) Association that not only did they issue a unanimous opinion letting me take the next bar exam and citing to the gender discrimination in my case, but they did it in within like four hours. That never happens. Never, ever do you get an answer from the Supreme Court on the same day. Like, it just doesn't happen. And so, you know... I always feel like that is the sweetest form of justice I've ever received in my life. It's like people fight these systems every day and you can get so defeated in all of them. You know, whether it's waiting for a healthcare decision, if the insurance company will pay for a test your child needs or trying to get food stamps, but they're tripping about some limit on your vehicle and how much you know your vehicle's worth or, you know, just like all of these systemic barriers every day can just break you down. And it felt like for one time in my life, a system actually heard me and actually saw me and saw my fight and, and gave me the opportunity to become a lawyer and serve the people that I want to serve. I didn't want to be a corporate lawyer. I just wanted to help other people who've been caught up in the system to like overcome their challenges and to yeah. get jobs and housing and vacate their criminal records and help them rebuild their lives after incarceration. And that Supreme Court, you know, did that for me on that day. That's amazing. One thing I want to ask you is, you know, you mentioned they felt that you were too proud. And you mentioned that, you know, even when you were in law school and you were excelling, right? And the governor was reaching out to you. You said you took ownership of your story. And some people, right, they might try to stray away from their story. But you owned it, the Mm -hmm. good and the bad, right? Mm -hmm. So how did you get to that point where like, you know what? I'm not trying to. Yes, I am trying to reinvent myself, but I'm owning my past and I'm embracing it. When did you get to that point? I would say probably, you know, my second year in law school is really when I, yeah, I struggled a lot. I was like, oh, maybe I'll just go into medical malpractice because I was a nurse, you know, but then I was like, oh, corporate lawyers, they're not going to hire me. Plus, I don't really feel like I fit in there. And I struggled with it a lot. And then I finally, you know, got inspired by some other people around the nation who were finding power in their stories, people in New York you know, um, Just Leadership USA. I went through that program finally um, after I graduated from law school, but I was watching and I was inspired and I was like, yeah, I'm going to own my story and I'm going to use it for a a vehicle for good, for changing people's hearts and minds. And if I share my story and the whole truth, it can help people understand how people get caught up in the criminal legal system that were not throwaways and that you know, maybe that can drive policy change. And so that's really what I got excited about and why 
I have become so transparent. Plus it just feels pretty damn freeing to like not live in shame or in secret, right? To be a transparent person that's authentic. I mean, that's really, I think how I've gotten so far, including becoming a state representative. My community loves that about me. Yeah, I think that's super important. In my previous job, I used to coach candidates to run for office. And the Mm -hmm. one thing we used to tell them is own your story, be authentic. People are going to support you for who you are, not because you're similar to another politician or some national leader. They want to know you. They want to know what you've done and what you're going to do. So can you tell me how it was like campaigning, right? Because even owning your story and understanding how to communicate is super important, but convincing people to understand why they should elect you and why your story matters is a whole nother battle. So can you tell us a little bit of how that went? Yeah. So I definitely never saw myself running for office. Um, (laughs) Like I said, I never saw myself graduating from high school. Okay. So this is like a trip to me, but on the day of my Supreme Court hearing, there was several legislators who come from the Capitol over to the Temple of Justice to sit in the room and watch the hearing. And they were supporting me because I had been doing advocacy, you know, down in in the Capitol. And um, my representative, she's like, Tara, I need to retire, but I'm not going to retire unless you run. And it took her like five times of telling me this before I finally said yes. But after I won my Supreme Court case, you know, my story was nationally um, told, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, all of this. And, and so a lot of people, especially in my community knew my story and knew I had fought the bar and won and became a lawyer and all this work I was doing to advance the rights of people who've been incarcerated. And, and so, you know, I really thought I didn't want to do it because it's a lot of unpaid work running for office. Not like you're getting paid to do all that, you know, And I have, you know, children and a family and a job and like, I didn't want to do it, but I also knew that someone had to break the concrete ceiling for formerly incarcerated people. So if you look at history, you know, it used to only be white men that were in political office. Only white men were lawyers. At some point, a woman went and broke that concrete ceiling and then a black woman went and a black male first, you know, and then a black woman and then a a Latino man, a Latino woman, an LGBTQ person, you know, like a refugee, uh, you know, but there had never been a formerly incarcerated person that had won a state elected office in my, in my state. And I felt like I needed to normalize it. Right. It wasn't just about me. It was about all the other people who are going to run one day who need to have a freaking seat at the table because they're making policy decisions on how to, um, you know, invest dollars into people with trauma histories or, you know, what a sentence should be for a particular crime. They're making all of those decisions without the perspective of someone who's lived through it in that caucus room. And I felt like I needed to get inside that caucus room and then pave the way for others. And so I finally made the decision to do it, but I also knew like there was never going to be anyone else that was more primed to do it, yeah. right? Because I had been so open. Because I waived confidentiality in my Supreme Court case 
so we could get a written decision finally to guide other applicants who want to become a lawyer. I had to waive confidentiality, share my whole story, the the parts that I'm not proud of and all of that. And so I felt like since I've used my story for my my platform, my power, nobody could take that away from me. And and my opponents that would try and did try to paint me as my past, they were unsuccessful because I had inoculated myself from all of that by being proactive for so many years. And and so I felt like I was really, if I didn't do it, then nobody else would ever get like the chance or it would take a lot longer for someone else to get the chance to break that ceiling and normalize it. And now we just elected a city councilwoman who is formerly incarcerated. I mean, like people are popping up and running and not letting their past dictate their future or, or shy them away from the political process. And I really believe when we get more people with different lived experiences into positions of power and policymaking, that's how we will get better policies that help our communities instead of causing more harm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. We, we see it here in New York too. We just had our first formerly incarcerated assembly member elected. Uh, this Eddie, pa- Gibbs. Eddie, Eddie Gibbs, Gibbs exactly. Yeah. And now I know. he's starting his own democratic club for folks who want a second chance. And nice. I think it's really starting like a local political revolution of giving an opportunity to so many folks who were didn't have access to it at all, never even thought of themselves as going up to Albany or going downtown to City Hall. Yep, I know. Yeah, I definitely am keeping a list because now there are more that are running and getting elected across the nation. I'm trying to stay in contact with them. Eddie Gibbs is one in New York. I've definitely messaged with him and then Keturah Heron in Kentucky. Um, So, and we just, you know, my friend had run for Congress this last year, Sarita Stibe from New Orleans, Louisiana, but she didn't win. But still, we're going to get some folks in Congress too. Awesome. And you know, in the the East Coast, whenever we think of Washington State, we think about it as a a progressive part, right? Because of Seattle and the neighboring counties, but there's really conservative areas of Washington State. Oh, yeah. I lived in Pasco, Washington for a year. Oh. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Goodness. so how do you, you know, like when you're there at conference talking to your colleagues, both from the eastern part of Washington State and the western part of Washington State, like how do people accept you from someone that's a Republican or a more conservative Democrat? You know, I mean, I feel like they don't necessarily understand, but I have done a lot of educating them. Um, I do think that there's some issues that we can find common ground on. I try to utilize national right of center lobbyists to help support me to get things done. You know, I I don't know how they accept me or not, but I accept me. So, you know, it's not my business what they think of me. It is my business if they vote for my bills or not. (laughs) And so (laughs) I'm trying to get them to vote for my bills and I will do whatever it takes to make that happen. So, you know, I try to form like authentic relationships based on our humanity. You know, I was on a, a Zoom earlier today with a Republican. Um, and we're going to work on this really simple bill together. But we're talking about our kids. And, you know, I am trying to build like goodwill uh, as much as I can and agree on the things we can and try to convince them. And we'll see. I, I, I was pretty successful my first term. Uh, my freshman bill restored the right to vote for all people as soon as you 
leave the prison door. You can register even if you owe court fines and fees, even if you're on probation or parole. You know, that was my freshman bill. I've done, I, I, I've made great progress. I passed six really good bills my first term and millions and millions of dollars of investments into reentry. So we'll see. I, I'm ready to start my next term now. And, and you passed a bill that was really close to my heart. I've been focusing my, my first term on home attendance and home care aids. And you were able oh. to eliminate background checks, right? For anyone that yeah. wanted to be a provider. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I think being a nurse and also having had the experience of having a felony conviction and not being able to get paid to care for my dying father, even though someone else could, right, is um, because of my criminal background. And then, you know, knowing how many, how short we are for in-home care providers and how racist our policies are because when we're using the criminal legal system, we're just using that as a uh, proxy for race in a lot of ways. And we want to have culturally appropriate care. So we have to expand <laughs> who can do it. So yeah, my first session, I ran a bill that removed the restrictions for criminal history to become in-home care providers. I was able to go pretty far, including some violent offenses like assaults and robberies and things like that. And then we've also had a work group going over the last two years to look at, for example, if someone has a homicide conviction, but it's your family member and they really want you to be their care provider, why is the government standing in the way around stuff like that? So, you know, there's always going to be more progress to be made on all of these issues, but that one was really important for both racial justice and economic equity for people who are providing that care for free because they can't be paid due to a criminal record and just workforce development in this, you know, we need a lot of healthcare workers. So I was able to actually get bipartisan support on that. Um, few Republicans voted with me. So it was nice. That's awesome. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. And and thank you. And recently you just got reelected. How does it feel? Yeah, it feels great. And you know, my first term, both two years, I was on Zoom the entire time. Wow. And so I do think, you know, this last week I went down to the Capitol, we had our assembly days and I was able to see my colleagues in person for the first time. I was able to walk through the marble halls and feel the magic of this special place. I was able to sit on the dais for the first time. <laughs> and, you know, it was like incredible. And I do feel like I'm going to be even more effective yeah. when I'm down there in person and able to like break bread with people um, across the aisle and try to build more and educate them more about why working on criminal justice reform is not a red or blue issue. You know, it's really uh, a fiscally responsible and humane thing yeah. we need to work on. So that's my whole goal is to try to build more bipartisan support to keep moving progress forward on these issues. And I think I'm going to do much better when I'm in person. You've definitely earned your spot. So I, it just sounds like you're doing amazing work. I wanted to know, though, during your first term, did you ever find it difficult? Like, did you ever feel that you needed to prove yourself? Oh, God, yes. And I tell you, I mean, I ended both of my first two sessions, like crying for days. Um, a lot of the work is some of the work is very triggering to me personally. And I'm the only person that's impacted by some of these policies, mm. right? Whether it's, you know, my Democratic colleagues, for example, they want to make it easier for us to vote, but now they want to make it harder for us to restore our civil rights as far as firearms go. 
And like, I'm not a gun person. You can take all the guns off the face of the earth. I don't care. But my son, like I said, is a Marine. He's going to be a police officer. He's going to be the first black police officer my county has ever had. And he's doing that to try to go inside, hold his colleagues accountable, be part of the change and the transformation of policing. He's doing it for good reasons, but he can't afford to move out because housing costs too much. He's going to need to live here with his gun. Okay. So I need to restore my rights. And when you're trying to make it harder, I don't want to get another unlawful possession of a firearm because I'm in a car with somebody that has one. I'm always at risk in that way. And my colleagues, they don't understand. They don't want to take the time to like actually learn about my community and formerly incarcerated people and why, you know, building upon the criminal legal system is, is not a good way to go. And so I'm constantly trying to educate them. It gets super triggering. I don't like some pieces of the work and I do feel like I have to prove myself and I have, you know, to be more effective, more successful than the white male that graduated from Harvard and can sit there and like get reelected time and time again without much effort. You know, I feel like I have to work a lot harder and there's a target on my back always. Now, when it gets triggering, where do you go? Is it, you know, maybe you revisit family, you know, your son, like how do you get centered and focused on the goal? Yeah. I mean, thank God I've had like 10 years of therapy now. Um, So I can generally try to ground myself, but sometimes it is, there's so much going on at once. That's why being on Zoom was really bad because I was sitting here alone in my office. I think when I'm in person, I do have colleagues there who maybe they're not formally incarcerated, but I do think that they are truly, they truly get it. And maybe they come from communities where, or have family members who've been incarcerated. They're people of color who have experienced oppression and pain. And like, I do think when I'm there in person, I will have more colleagues that wouldn't just let me sit here crying with my Zoom screen off for hours and hours as we're trying to decide whether we're going to return to the war on drugs or if we're going to decriminalize. You know, that's one thing that has been going on here in Washington that I've been trying to fight tooth and nail is that the criminal legal system is not the appropriate place to treat a public health issue. And our Supreme Court struck down our drug possession statute as unconstitutional. And we're dealing with that in the legislature right now. And the caucus, my own caucus and the Democrats are split on that issue. But all you have to do is look at the data and you'll see that is the most racist policy since slavery. And we should not return to giving people who are in just mere possession of drugs a felony. It ruins their life. They can't get housing, can't get jobs. So anyway, I could go on and on. It's not easy. It's not just fun and unicorns all day. But fortunately, I feel good about the progress I've made and the things I've been able to stop so far. And I'm going to keep doing everything I can to build power within the caucus and within the legislature on behalf of my community. Well, what do you think is next for you? Do you think this position is it or do you want to continue to expand your presence and and your platform? Well, I mean, I don't have any uh, ambitions to run for higher office at this time. I really, really, really don't. It's a lot. It's it's a lot of work and it's a lot of emotional labor. Um, I love my community here and I do. I get a lot of 
healing from being in community and with the people who I know I'm in authentic relationship with here in my neighborhood, right? And in my town. And so I don't really want to go to DC or like run for Congress. I really do love my my current job, but I will keep, I mean, that's why I said yes to doing the interview with you, right? I, I will keep sharing about this, about my life story, as much as it can help change policy, change hearts and minds, show people there is hope, encourage other people to go to law school, run for office, become part of the change. Um, so as far as increasing my presence, I will continue to do that, but not because I want to run for higher office. Mm. And, <laughs> and Tara, you, you mentioned something that really stood out to me. I felt like throughout the interview, you kept going back to your kids. Every yeah. time, you, you know, I, I would ask you a question and you would go back to your kids like that was your fight. What advice would you give to those that are incarcerated that have young children or people that are returning to society? What advice would you give them that are still trying to navigate creating this bond with their child? You know, I would say, you know, write, write to your child every single day, even if you can't send it every day even if you just hold on to it, um, because at some point in their life, you can give it to them and they'll know that you were always thinking of them. Um, and I would just say, you know, it's the little things that matter. Um, and so, you know, when I think about my upbringing and in the chaos of all of that, I always think about how my father made me breakfast. You know, he made me some chorizo with eggs in the morning. You know, even though he was a crack addict and like doing the most, when he made me breakfast, I'll never forget that. So it's the little things. And just even if you don't have like money, your time is what your kids want. They want that time. They want that physical affection as much as you can. When you're incarcerated, a lot of that stuff is out of your control, but you can write them and then send them little cards and let them know how much they mean to you and how special they are. And it'll pay off later on. Well, thank you so much for being on. Uh, we really appreciate your story, everything you have been doing. It's it's truly amazing. And I, I know there's a super bright future for you and you're going to continue to break ceilings all along the way. We really appreciate you being on The Hardest Stuff and looking forward to, to interviewing again in the future. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Hardest Stuff. We drop new episodes every Wednesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you're enjoying our conversations, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time.